out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer, songwriter and performer, Teresa Bazaar, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. One time member of the 70s band Guys and Dolls and also Dollar from the late 70s and early 80s, went on to a solo career and is currently about to have some more dates with a version of Dollar and this is going to be the end of September 2023 starting in Milton Keynes and running through into uh, October with Burnley but I'll give you some more dates in the link below but this is the interview so after several minutes of interest and casual chat we get down that exciting subject that was the early musical years a musical awakening anyway Teresa it's over to you the carpenters oh the carpenters we love the carpenters yes I was very um I was smitten by ballet at the age of two and a half and and although it was the movements and the precision, the perfectionism, um, it was the classical music as well. So before the Carpenters, I really grew up um, in my world as a young person and with ballet music. So I loved the, the sort of Chopin, Tchaikovsky. I knew all the Chopin nocturnes off by heart. I could sing all the melodies and a bit of Beethoven, but nothing too heavy and big, you know. Um, and then my ja- my dad was a semi-professional jazz guitarist and he used to play Django Reinhardt and Dave Brubeck and, of course, Frank and Ella. So I had all these different sounds, but nothing pop. Right. And um, uh, long story short, I was actually working, um, making sandwiches for um, a supermarket and, and I had like a cafe upstairs and I was elevated from packing shelves to going making the sandwiches for the for the lunch for the staff and they had music coming through in the kitchen and it was a pop station and so I was in there sort of like dancing around the kitchen because I'd done everything I needed to and I'm listening to this music and, and I heard the carpenters and I kind of was really struck and because I loved the harmonies so I used to start practicing learning how to harmonize literally from the carpenters and I bought my first album was theirs with my pocket money from stacking the shelves. And um, and I made it my mission. I would put the whole album on and I would actually choose either the melody and then it would be the third above harmony and then it would be the third below and then a fifth. And I would actually rehearse. If I made a mistake, I had to go back to the beginning. Right. That is fantastic. That's that is great training. Yes. Yeah, that was great. Little did I know that it was damn in good stead for guys and dolls, but... That's life. You don't know what's going to come in the future, do you? No, this is this is very true. No, because because we, you know, I came from a kind of very working class family in um, in East Anglia, so you know, it was the countryside. And I think when my parents got married in the late fifties, that that was the generation that never had any debt or any didn't borrow money, so they they would save. So I think when my dad, you know, he had some records and bits and pieces, and then they got married, he sold everything. And then a record player appeared in our bungalow in the early 70s. And we bought, you know, they bought a few records. And one of them was the Carpenters. To be honest, yeah. I then I then realised it was Top of the Poppers sing the Carpenters. But at the time, I didn't realise. And I'd go and play this, this record constantly. And it was just like, I still to this day know all the lyrics. I absolutely love the the sentiment. 
And um, yes, and years later, to be honest, I was a very, in the 80s, I was a very indie kid who liked all these bands like the Smiths and Joy Division. And I always remember thinking, well, because they, they're quite depressive lyrics. And then I thought, well, no wonder I'm drawn to this music because Karen Carpenter's, all those songs that she sung were all about, you know, love, loneliness, you know, and saying goodbye yeah. to love. And I just thought, oh, yeah. yeah. So, yes, a good old Karen Carpenter. She oh. was that's yeah. stunning and and yet they weren't they weren't that's interesting is it because they weren't really apart from um uh i'm on the top of the world i mean which is an upbeat sort of a lot of it was very sad very angst um which suited the timbre of her voice beautifully you know but it was they were sad weren't they they tugged at the heartstrings yes absolutely i say goodbye to love no one seems to care if i should live or die no, that's no. Uh, that's. Uh, but there was there was moments like there was a song called "Sing," wasn't there? Which was absolutely it was yeah. quite positive and uh, yeah. yeah. But I used to love you know rainy days and Mondays. It was just Mondays that kind always of, get me down. <laughs> I know, and it was just like gosh, that is. I don't know why I was only about ten at the time, or even younger, mm. and it was just it just really you know resonated. But obviously, Top of the Pops was a really big thing in my life. So um, and the top. 20 or 40 on a, on a Sunday evening, which they seem to listen to. So when you got to 16, did you, what, what happened during that? Cause obviously you're, you, you know, you have a musical family, which is fantastic because your dad, then 16, did you leave school at this age or stay on? Uh, no, I managed to negotiate with my mum. My dad was more easy going, but with my mum that, um, I wanted to go to performing arts school. I wanted to leave earlier, but I managed to pass my 11 plus. I was at a grammar school like my sister. And uh, and I kind of, she said, if you take your O-levels and you do well, then I'll consider that you can leave. And if you get yourself, because they couldn't afford to send me to um, a performing arts school, but um, I managed to get a scholarship. So I worked very hard for my O-levels and uh, it was a very fierce school, really strict. And uh, And then I, managed to get um, a scholarship to go to the arts educational. Uh, right. And, and it wasn't to the real cutting edge, show busy Italia Conti that I really wanted to go to. And my mum put, and, and, and anyway, they didn't offer scholarships. My mum said, you can only go somewhere if you're going to carry on your education, um, which I did for about a few months, but then I stopped. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then how did you, how did guys, guys and dolls kind of appear in your life? Um, I'd done a couple of pantos and a touring show uh, with, with a sort of a girl boy dancing singing group and I was out of work and um, the stage newspaper was everything it was our bible and uh, in the ads at the back there was a, an ad for girls and boys who could sing and dance right and I thought oh. I do that and I thought it was sort of a a musical traveling show a bit like the one I just finished with and it wasn't it was for a pop group Blimey, that was it. And that was, so was that Guys and Dolls? Was that a new sort of, were they put, was this a band that was kind of put together, as they say, you know, by by a sort of. A manufacturing group. Right. Absolutely. Together by um, three guys who formed a management production company and they got this record because there's a whole lot of loving. Yes. And they wanted the group to front it. Yeah. Blimey. And that was the the, the mid-70s, wasn't it? And and obviously... And that that sort of had the charts sort of success, didn't it? Kind of peaked in the top five, I believe. And then so, the Bay right. City Rollers held us off. They were the only ones. I mean, when you think about it, that's kind of pretty big. 
It's huge, isn't it? Basie's rollers were so massive, actually, at that time, and the Osmonds and David Cassidy. Did you? How did how did that kind of affect you at that stage? Suddenly being probably not even twenty and having such success. I was um yeah, my head was firmly on my shoulders. I was so aware that I had to really play catch up fast. I mean, three of the guys and dolls were from Italia Conti, the stage school. So confident, so. I can do anything attitude you know and out there and kind of loud and upbeat and and um and then the two guys Dominic and Paul were much older they were like nine or ten years older than us four and um and then there was me and I was kind of very different very conservative um I went to the audition wearing my mum's raincoat with a pair of black boots on and a long a-line black skirt I mean I looked like Julie Felix seriously right. you know I looked like spoky kind of <laughs> there was not one bit of fashion or pop or anything about me um but I I'm a quick learner and I work really hard and yes uh, and the irony of it all was that I actually fell in love with pop music I, I, I didn't think I would I thought I'll do it and that's a job and and I fell in love with the production side of pop music. It was just the most extraordinary thing. And I would analyze everything, every bit of instrumentation, the harmonies, the phrasing, you know, going back to the carpenters, you know, that kind of. And I suddenly thought, this is it. This is what I was meant to do. I mean, that is so, yes, and at such a young age. And then, you you know, this this doesn't completely pan out as as often showbiz does doesn't have that sort of easy narrative does it did was that a big no. thing leaving leaving the band and leaving the group oh well we got kicked out I mean no it wasn't what was not my choice David I mean we were an item we were girlfriend and boyfriend then and he was really fed up I mean the writing was on the wall for him he he wasn't getting any lead vocals he didn't get any camera shots and he really felt sort of marginalized and uh and the plan was that he was going to leave and I was going to stay on and earn some money so I could support us while mm. he went and got a solo deal. And um, no, nope, they weren't having it. And uh, they just threw us both out. I, I was devastated. Uh, yes. I, I was heartbroken, actually, would... for a while. Heartbroken. Yes. And was it scary at that stage thinking, oh, was that it? My my moment in my 15 minutes of fame has been and gone. Yeah. I felt really bereft because I think also we were like a family. We've been on the road for three years. You know, we were working. We, we, we were never at home. If we were home, we slept, you know, and anyway, Dave and I were together. But they were our family, you know, and that's the world I knew. And I suddenly thought, how am I meant to live and what am I meant to do? Because there's nothing in the diary. No one's telling me where to go and what time I have to be ready. So it was, it was, um, it was really scary and it made me... Uh, made me feel very vulnerable yes I would imagine and also yeah I mean you hear this from people who've been in bands theatre football players that moment where yes there's no direct old people who've been in the forces as well haven't they you know the army navy suddenly having no no sort of uh, schedule no structure and suddenly it's could 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 all go terribly wrong sometimes one and does yeah. So how how did you manage to then navigate to the next bit? Because obviously this kind of coming towards 77, the music landscape has changed. Suddenly those bands, like you said, the Bay City Rollers, and I mentioned the Osmonds and um yeah, David Cassidy, that that 
that kind of moment. And you don't realise at the time how music seems to change every five years. I often think there's a sort of a slightly new wave of, I suppose it's a new wave of 16, 18 year olds that come along and they're looking for their their new pop hit. And at that stage, that glam, that glam world had gone and, you know, those you know, artists and bands had slightly had their day, even though they probably didn't realise it. And then punk, you know, was coming and there was a whole new wave and prog rock had happened and was kind of waning as well. So what was it like for you kind of trying to think about the future at that stage? Yeah, well, I, I think partly I have been making waves myself in Guys and Dolls. I mean, there's no mistake, but that was all about the music. It was all about the music and I was critical. I just said, I think we need to broaden our horizons and really start thinking about the future because things are changing. And I was all about, we have to keep moving forward. We can't keep churning out the same things because that's not going to help. We have to be brave and we have to imagine what we could do and try some different things. Um, and no one was really listening to me. Uh, so probably in a way it was a blessing that I did get thrown out with David. But um it was as luck would have it. He couldn't get arrested as a solo deal. I mean, he was, you're right. He was like Davy Jones and David Cassidy um, and Donnie all rolled into one. I mean, he was the archetypal, very good looking, gorgeous, young pop star. And no one offered him a solo deal. I, I, I was, yeah, I just couldn't believe it. Actually, I got offered a solo deal by a Dutch, Dutch company, EMI Holland. And, and and I didn't even think, I went, no, no, no. I said, no, I, I don't want to do that. You've got the wrong person. I literally said, you've got the wrong person. It's him. He wanted to be a solo artist. I don't want to be a solo artist. I was very happy being in a group, albeit I didn't think the music was going in a good direction. But I, I'm a team player. I said, I don't want to be a solo artist. And um, we fell over uh, a couple of guys who put their heads together and said they wanted to form a management company. And um, one of them was a, a Radio 1 promotion guy and uh he said look how about if we market you as a girl boy duo because Greece was very 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 big and Donnie and Marie in the states and there was no no girl boy in the UK right yes said, how about we try it with the two of you together and David kind of went oh I suppose so it's something and see and of course they went to this new label and um they signed us on the spot it just it was just luck chemistry I don't know my God. And it's it was kind of a massive moment, wasn't it? Kind of 78, 79, because because I always find it kind of interesting on the sort of social and political front, because at that stage, things were moving again in the end of a decade and beginning of another. And sort of 1979, you know, Margaret Thatcher gets in and little did we know what was going to come next. But, you know, for the next basically 11 years, we have quite a different you know kind of political landscape and then the Falkland war appears and then we have the the, the miners strike and there's green and common and the threat of nuclear war so it's kind of an interesting time things start to move again quite quickly and that punk period sort of quickly you know goes as again so yeah it's it's kind of interesting the way that you sort of appeared at the beginning or the end of a decade and then sort of really shaped the beginning of the next decade yeah, I think it was really interesting. And I, I do think, um, yeah, it's the, it's the young people, be it teenagers, or, but, but particularly in, in that era, it was the teenagers that had their pocket money and would save up to really wait until they had enough to go and buy that record, you know, or to, it, it was just such an excitement. And I think uh, it was to do with um, 
sort of a revolution of young people wanting to do things very differently creatively. I mean, in the early 70s, with all those very family orientated shows, and it, and it was okay to, to be a teenager and yes. sit down with your mum and dad and your siblings and watch something that was meant to be family entertainment. And everyone seemed to be quite happy doing that. And suddenly you got to the late 70s and early 80s, and all of that changed. You know, you couldn't be straight. You know, you couldn't, because M-O-R, there was a dirty word, M-O-R. And I was very aware that we needed to remain pop and be pop. Because if yes. you were M-O-R, which of course is ridiculous, because that's how you're going to sell albums and have fans forever. But we didn't know that then. But you've got to be at least in the pop world so that you've got some credibility. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And on the album, the first album, I mean, it's you write, you co-wrote quite a few of the songs on that album, didn't you? Did that was that a great experience, you know, at the time and looking back? putting the Shooting Stars album together? I've always wanted to be a songwriter. In fact, I don't know why I ever stopped being a songwriter, really, because it was even when I was very young, I thought it's the one thing you can do. No one's going to judge you about how you look, what you're wearing, because I was just so sick of all of that. And yes. I felt it was so superficial a lot of the time that, that they can just listen to a song and you're sort of anonymous, really. But they'll just judge your creativity on the merit of what you're presenting, what you've written, not what who you are. And I love that idea of disassociation. Um, and I, I loved writing that, that, that album. And I kind of, when you're young, you're sort of fearless, really, aren't you? And you just kind of do it from the heart and from the soul. And I've always been quite naive like that, thinking people will be their best and, yes. and, and judge fairly. But of course they don't, do they? We all know we're older now and wiser. But I believe that then. And I think in some of those early songs, there was a lot of just genuine genuine creativity it was just exactly what I wanted to do and um I know better now I mean I still still you know I still have a much better understanding but I I think some of those songs are pretty lovely yes absolutely and then coming the always the tricky second album because this was this on a, a different label at this stage the first album yeah. So what was the first la uh, album, uh, label you were on? So the first, the first label was the new um, record label called Acrobat Records. And they brilliantly had um, were signing up their artists and very, very differing styles of music, but also finding the writers and the producers. And it was like a proper stable. You know, it was really, really well run because it was small. Um, and a lovely, lovely guy with probably one of the best pairs of ears in the music industry called Chris Yule. I think he came from EMI to, to who, and he was the MD or CBS head of ANR to come to run this label. And so we fortunately hit the jackpot with David Courtney, who wrote Shooting Star and who he was in the moonlight. And um, Chris Neal was an up and coming producer who just recorded the Marshall Hain Dancing in the City hit, which was very different. Yes. Production, very, very cool. And, um, and Chris Yule said, well, Rosters, it's all very busy. So anyway, David Courtney's got these two songs. It's really going to suit you two. And you're working with Chris Neal. And that was it. And that's how we got Chris. And of course, what's always happened in my life, but that's, you know, that is so many people's stories that Chris Neal um, did a fabulous job on the album and he was brilliant to work with. And then, of course, um, someone asked him to record a record for Sheena Easton. And that kind of was it because that record went crazy. And of course, the idea of doing Sheena's album 
you know, that top doing a second album for Dollar and so forth, you know. So um, so that was that. We changed labels. We went and signed to WEA. Yes, gosh, there was, yeah. there was obviously, was there a fantastic offer on the table at that stage and a bidding more? It was it was quite a lot of money and um, allowed us to buy a house, a little house, which was really amazing. Um, I remember running along the street actually going, gosh, you've got to get to the bank before they close. You've got to get holding a check, which was our advance and, and kind of thinking it's like being in the movies. You know, it really was very very big for me to take on board and then the responsibility of course came with well you know and everyone thinks when you've had all these hit records four hits um and a a successful album well what are you going to do and then they suddenly expect you as a young artist to tell them how it's all going to work out yes absolutely it's a much bigger operation so we didn't have the um didn't have anybody even though we had a label manager in those days they didn't have an understanding of how to look after us musically. Yes, interesting, isn't it? Did you, on, with writing the second album, did you have enough kind of material and inspiration sort of to to get back in the studio and start sort of working again? Because obviously the second album can, you know, every band from any different types of genre have got the same kind of issue of like, oh, good, you know, we did that first album, that's all our experience in life. And we've been working on it and then we've been just busy, busy. And then it's like back in the back in the studio to write the second album. And sometimes there is just, you know, the label and everybody just wants that momentum. I didn't, you know, what was it like trying to sort of get back and, um, yes, get another 10 or 15 songs together? It was very difficult. It was really difficult. If I think about it now and everyone, you know, I knew a bit like the guys and dolls experience. We had to keep, you know, things were going super fast. It's the 80s. And we had to keep moving forward. And and I knew if we'd done the same beautiful records as the first Shooting Stars album, it wasn't going to work because people, they want you to move on because they're moving on, you know, and you have to play catch up all the time. So um, in retrospect, uh, went too far to the left. I wanted it to be an edgier, slightly edgier, more, yeah, more depth, I think, um, sound wise introducing guitars and it veered a little bit too much that way um but saying that the song the songs are actually including a, quite a few of those songs in the show and right. i'm actually loving singing them it's such fun i mean like for instance one there's a track called young love that i actually love on that second album the paris collection i mean you can see from the from the album cover we wanted to be kind of you know, a little bit edgier, a little bit yes. darker, and, and and maybe a little bit sexier. You know, but just not the squeaky clean. You're know, moving on, and um, love that image. And we wanted the music to therefore marry up with that, but it just a bit too bigger a leap. Yes, and how and how did you? And at this stage, had you also teamed up or started to meet? Our man uh, Trevor Horn at this point, who just been uh, he'd been in buggles, and I don't think he'd been right. in yet, uh, in yes quite yet, but he was about to sort of have another interesting career change, wasn't he? So how did... yeah, sorry, no, I said, and then he went into this super prog band, I think he called Yes, which was a very strange collaboration, but yes, yeah, so so Buggles had sort of hit. I do remember on the school bus hearing this, you know, the classic song. So, yes, how did you manage to meet Trevor? 
Well, this is this amazing sort of, I've had a few big accidents in my life. It's just so perfect and you can never make them up. Uh, and um, so immersed in making the second album, The Paris Collection, we actually recorded it in Paris. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I kind of really wasn't listening to anything else. I was just very in involved in the production and wrote songs and all of that. And um, when it um, wasn't successful, I sort of, came out from a, a hiding in my room, I think for a while, so I thought, this happens and we just have to get on with it, you know, it's not always going to be easy. And uh, I was driving around in my car one day and I heard Video Killed the Radio Star for the first time. And I know I was probably nine months or a year, have not have heard it. And, um, and I pulled over and I stopped and listened to it. And I listened to the sex of bass drum was the first thing. Then I listened to the separation, the oh, 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 that, that inc the incredible picture that he painted coming through my speakers in the car. And I went, that's it. Whoever produced that, that is exactly what we need. And um, I made it my mission to get some kind person at his record company, and they did give me his number. And um, when I called him, and I can be quite persuasive. Yes. And uh, even though he said, but I don't, I, I don't produce other artists. I said, I know. I said, but would you maybe just come and have a chat? You know, just, and he said, yeah, I suppose I can do that. I mean, he's such a lovely guy. And um, so we met in a tiny Japanese restaurant in Soho in London. And, uh, and he wasn't interested really at all. He was just being polite. And then he said, well, what, what's happening for the rest of this year? And I said, we're going to Tokyo. Um, I think it might be the end of this year. And his, his eyes just lit up and he said, Tokyo and Japan. I went, yeah. He went, oh. And then we sort of got a bit more interested. And he said, well, look, I'm going off to do a writing session tonight with Bruce Woolley. And um, if anything interesting happens, I'll call you. And that was it. And I walked away feeling pretty dejected, really going, it's not, you know, he doesn't seem that interested and not making any of the right noises. And below me down the next day, he called me and he said, he actually had a really good night. I mean, he's very mild-spoken. Uh, and he said, you wrote this song. We actually laid down a demo. I wondered if you and David would pop over and put some vocals on it. And that actually was the blueprint for handheld in black and white. And, of course, the opening lyric is, on a ticket, Tokyo return. Wowza. Yes, that's really nice, that's, isn't that's it? How, and that's how it happened, yeah. And there you go. The, the, yes. And suddenly, so was the atmosphere for that album? Did you sort of at the time feel like something special was happening when that was coming together? I I knew. I think having had the wonderful experience of being with Chris Neal for the first dollar album and then sitting in Psalm Studios with Trevor and of course Gary um Langan, his engineer, who's just beyond superb, can't think of an adjective that could adeptly describe Gary's talent. And um, I knew, I mean, I knew to the point, honestly, Dave, I didn't move out of that studio until everyone was switching off the lights and going home. I never left because I knew that this was a magical time and, I, and nothing ever lasts forever, you know, and I kind of knew something special. And Trevor was just, I knew I was sitting next to a genius. And I, would, I would be glued to yes. his side the entire time, the entire time. and. Um, it was lovely because, of course, he didn't really know what he was doing. I mean, it was just being creative, wasn't it? I mean, yes, he didn't absolutely. really have a dollar. Um, and I know Jill Sinclair, bless her, 
I think she did say to Trevor, just go and, you know, and Trevor's going, but I don't really produce other acts. And, and Jill said, well, just go and make them another Buggles record. And they, you know, uh, which is true because that's exactly what I heard of that sound. But it was really very, um, it was just adventures. Like, you know, as he said in his book, Adventures and Modern Recording, you know, that's kind of it. And uh, oh, it was amazing. And I learned, that was, I learned so much. Yes, absolutely. And what, what did you, I mean, again, you know, it was kind of an in, interesting, exciting period because suddenly the country had this little boost into, you know, this kind of, you know, things felt like they were changing again and, and there was a certain energy around the place, I suppose, you know, after the, the Falkland Hall and, and su- such like. I mean, you know, the country was a bit divided at the time as well, but but there was also a bit of a boost. And also that the music that was starting to sort of hit the um the charts especially had been that kind of the slight blitz kids and the new romantic world and there was the Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran and people like that and Sade was coming along. Did you sort of have that sort of feeling of excitement with music at that stage thinking, you know, because again, these are kind of pure pop songs, aren't they? And artists who are, you know, some great production, great producers and, and some really interesting sounds coming out. Did you feel an exciting, you were on a part of a zeitgeist at this point? It was really, really exciting. I mean, like Top of the Pops said it all. But, you know, you're wandering up, up the hallways, you know, to go for a rehearsal or something. And you never knew who you were going to bump into. And, and everyone was bigger and larger and brighter than the rest, you know, from Susie and the Banshees you know, to the Duranis to Toya, um, you know, and then you'd have sort of like something quite different, Shaking Stephen still doing his thing, you know. It, it was just... um. It was so exciting, so much energy, and and it was like we were all a bit in free fall, uh, and you re- you sort of felt, and then of course Culture Club coming along with George, and you know I bumped into him in the, in the, in the ladies' loo at the Daily Mirror studios, and I kind of walked into the loo, and I walked out again, thought oh, I've done it again, walked into the the men's loo, and I'm, I go back and I look at the door, I go no, this does say the ladies' loo, and I walk, and he goes, do you mind? I went, oh no, it's okay, and I put my makeup back next to him. And he goes, hello, I'm George. I go, hello, I'm Teresa. And that's it. You know, but it was that was kind of it. And I loved that because I thought for once. Maybe people weren't sitting in judgment. They just wanted you to be yourselves. And I really believe that. And I think for a while, I think that energy was like that. Well, yes. apart from the press, of course, when they slated us, but, you know, the, the, the music press. But we were just um, we were their punching bag. That is true. This is almost never good, is it really? Um, yeah, yeah, it's nice to erase those things, aren't they? Um, but then, you know, you become a solo artist in the mid-80s and you release The Big Kiss. On that stage, what, how did you sort of navigate that next period and, and sort of manage to sort of find your, your sort of way at this time? Because obviously, you know, huge kind of change again, probably the same as experience or feelings you had in the 70s with Guys and Dolls. What was it like sort of stepping out completely on your own? Yeah, it wasn't as scary as I thought it might have been. Um, but that's probably because Bud Prager was managing me and he was um foreigner's manager. Very, very tall um American man who was so experienced. And I remember he 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 told me what to do when David walked out of Dollar. Um and I actually called Bud because he was meant to be managing us as Dollar to launch us in the States. And I called him, I said, I don't know what to do. I said, I'm just stuck here in Japan 
it's always like, you know, it's this like recurring nightmare. What am I going to do? He said, well, this is what you're going to do. You're going to get on a plane. You're going to organize your ticket. You're going to come to New York. Um, and then we're going to sit down and have a chat. And I did exactly. And he said, you're going to stop in Hawaii for two nights and have a rest so that you can think straight and get to New York. And I did everything he said. And he said, well, we're just going to, you're just going to be a solo artist now. And I just said, really? He said, yeah, really. And I said, okay. <laughs> just, just, and yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happened. Um, you know, you don't really know what will happen. I mean, Trevor was meant to be producing my album. And that's probably the thing that gave me the biggest thrill, you know, thinking, well, if I'm working with Trevor, then everything is possible. And we waited and we waited and we waited. And then in the end, I thought, I don't know, this is so good. And so um, we had to look around and, and as luck would have it, Arif Mardin, who would have thought somebody, just the most incredible record producer, would be remotely interested in making an Anglo-US pop album. I mean... I was just staggered and uh, he, he said he wanted to. And I sort of thought, well, why not? Yeah. Yes. And that was another amazing experience. Yeah. Yes. And then, then, then sort of, then the sort of the moment comes where, how does it, then how do you navigate, navigate the next bit? Because obviously that's, that's your, you know, solo album and the, the band is over. Then how do you sort of, yeah, pick yourself up for the next phase in life when it, Feels like I, most... I don't know. <laughs> that was that was that was um, heartbreak. I mean, compared to how I felt getting kicked out from Guys and Dolls, you know, multiply that by about a thousand. It's all those songs written with the best British writers. Um, it, it was like it was it was heartbreaking, and it took me quite a while to climb out of that very dark place. I mean, I. I just didn't really feel anything for ages. I, I just couldn't believe it. I, I just really couldn't. And then I suddenly thought, and then just one day I snapped out of it. And I thought, well, life goes on. It's not a tragedy, is it? It's just my world, but everyone else seems to be moving along okay, so I'd better do the same. Yes. And, um, yeah, I mean, what do you do? You know, you could curl up and go, that's over for me, but I'm not really like that. I don't have that sort of temperament. So yes. um, I thought, well, what do you do in times like this? I thought, well, I'll call David and see what he's up to. <laughs> you know, go back to a, a safe place. Uh, possibly not one of my better ideas, but things, great things came out of that as well. So um, it's all good. Yeah. No, it's just always interesting because a lot of the people I interview, you know, and, and, you know, I do veer towards the 80s indie bands. You know, there is this kind of five-year narrative, you know, they get together, mm. they have the 12-month rehearsal and they get a single in those days, you know, you also had, you know, other channels as well. And there was like the John Peel show and they would get that sort of play in a John Peel session. That first album, they do the touring, second album, things going quite well. And then that third album, things are often a little bit, you know, it's over. And then suddenly at such a young age, but all they've known is playing music and being so focused. And then it's like it it it's kind of something the the spell has been broken and and then it's that kind of what does one do next? So um, it's yeah, kind of interesting. That's, it, it's that, really, that's true. It's really tricky. But then a few years ago, Cherry Red Records put out this amazing box set, didn't they? Which was just absolutely stunning. And that must have felt like a really nice way of, of sort of archiving and having some sort of completion for your work. Yeah, I mean, I, I it, it really was lovely. I didn't realise 
how much work I'd done really because I sort of stopped thinking about it. I emigrated to Australia and sort of thought, that's it. That's my life as her, Teresa Bazaar, over. And I'm going to start a new life and experience other things. And 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 I did. I've got two gorgeous boys who are both healthy and we're very close. And that's a joy. And um, and it wasn't really until COVID. I mean, that was the beginning of the box set. But then it really wasn't until COVID and someone approached me and said, I think you should write a book. And I said, why would anyone remotely want to read about me? And then we had a few chats and I'm kind of thinking, hmm. So I started looking, thinking and looking back, which I had, I don't do. I don't sit and read my own press. But after doing that for a bit and looking after two decades of not even looking at anything, it was quite a big thing. And I sort of thought, you know, and it's all about the music. And I listened to some of those records and I sort of thought, how amazing, how marvellous. And I sort of thought, well, maybe. And it started off this little niggle in my head, maybe I should do something about it. And I guess because the end of the book, it's a memoir with all funny mm. stories, stupid things we did and wonderful things that happened. And and the, the end of the book is about ageism and how do we get older and what do we do with our lives and our time and think about nostalgia and good things and bad things and then of course with that came the thought well I'm an authentic person and if I want to start talking about all of this and maybe really I should leave from the front and start doing something rather than talking about it and not doing anything about it and I thought well what do I want to do my mum just had her 97th birthday yes that's amazing she looks so well and I thought yes and I thought if I'm going to live for 30 years I need to decide how I want to spend my time. And I thought that's exactly what I need to do. I need to dust everything off and I want to get back into music. And um, and that's what I want to do. So that's what I'm doing. And that's really how it all came around, which is, uh, you probably think she's mad, but uh, I'm having fun. Yes, well, absolutely. And it certainly gives you a, a schedule, doesn't it? So with the tour, that's that. this is in September, isn't it? This is going to be... Yeah. And into October. So what what can we expect from this? Because it's um yes, it, it like you said, it's in the UK and you're in Australia. So so what happens next? So we're we're, we're deep in rehearsals. I know it sounds mad, but we are rehearsing across the world until I actually get there at the end of August. And um then we'll be rehearsing all in the same room, which will be very nice. And um a live band, which uh, I Fully admit, you know, terrified me to think, oh, we're going to be up in a dollar touring with the live band because, but it's actually amazing. The musicians are fab. And it's also interesting because we can go through this musical journey from the Chris Neal production of Shooting Star, which is like was recorded with live musicians. And then we go through to the Paris collection, which was rockier. So that the guitarist is having a heyday with that. And the bass is yes. so, so cool. And then we go through to the treble horn stuff, which is trickier, but it can be done because there's so much tech available to keep the essence of what those records are really about, but it's still live. And then we go through to the pop dance era of the late 80s and to Ola Moore. So um, mm. it's it's actually fabulous. I can't tell you. You'll have to come and watch with yes. your own eyes. And you can let me know. But it, it's a challenge, but it is really going to be great. Yes, and playing slight catch up here. Do you, who? So it's not just you 
Is it? It's are you. You have you. Who are you? Are you? Have you? I got have a, a new singing partner. I have a new singing partner. Um, hey. Yes, no more David Van Day. That period of my life has completely moved on. Yes, and um, I have a new singing partner. My partner in crime, who is creatively brilliant. Um, we are on so much in sync that sometimes you say, "Well, the, what we talked about last week, we should definitely do." I said, "We never spoke about that, Stephen." So didn't we? I said, no. I said, I thought about it. And then you must have thought about it. But we never actually had the chat. And it seems to be happening more and more because we just get it. Um, and he's a touring musician. So he's always working with the band. And he's so he's very organized, very disciplined, very professional, right up my street. And um, he's got a fabulous voice. So uh, all in oh, all, it's really good. Yes, yeah. and, what, and what does it feel like, sort of? So chronologically, you're going to go through the the your, your sort of um, yes, the the whole catalog. Journey. Isn't it? Yeah, the, that's the right. Whole... So, and it didn't. We didn't plan to do it that way, but it just seemed to be authentic to do that because it is. It's all about the music at the yes. end of the day. It's all about the music and a little bit about and the stylistic changes and the melodic changes and how we approach things and 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 so it will be a. A nostalgic journey from then and take people back it's going to be glamorous I've told everyone you've got to, it's, a, it's a glam pop party dress up be sparkly you know remember what it felt like and that's also a way of saying why not why shouldn't people have fun and really go back to and music actually always I think is very closely linked to our memories and yes. it can give us that flashback to what you were doing who you were with what was happening in your life at that time very powerful yeah does it feel like having sort of put it slightly in a cupboard and and sort of moved on does it feel nice to 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 sort of work with it again and and sort of have some form of I wouldn't say completion but some some sense of kind of appreciation and and sort of enjoy it after some you know being being that thing just like oh yes that was 40 years ago we did all that and very mixed memories to actually just bringing it out into the open emotionally and being able to then look at it and think actually that was fine that's you know I need to enjoy it more I you know because because it's probably had so many mixed memories for you over the decades um after thinking that was it so to sort of bring it out now in this part of your life and then performing it in the UK for the autumn I just wonder what it was like sort of really being ensconced to with it again it's uh it's brought back a whole load of emotions partly it's brought back this whole new level of energy which of course is something that i will be sharing with everyone saying doesn't matter what age you are that's just a number but if you have always put something aside that you want to do that is not a good enough excuse you know you need to get up get on with it and put your best foot forward and for me i've now got the same kind of motivation and and sort of purpose purposefulness is that the right word probably <laughs> who knows <laughs> that it's in it makes me feel like I did when I was in my 20s and early 30s it's exactly the same feeling and only this time I feel very liberated because yeah I'm much older I've got wrinkles I've got my but I actually don't care and I actually don't care if people don't have to like me they don't have to agree with me um don't abuse my music that you can have a, you can have an opinion but I'm not bothered about that anymore because there are so many people that do care and are interested and so I'm doing it for us so as I said I think in the book 
you know, it sounds trite, but in the context of this paragraph, it goes, you know, it's actually not my stage and that audience. We're actually all on the same stage together because we're on a stage of our lives. And it's really quite nice because it makes me feel, yeah, I'm not scared. You know, I, I'm very happy to do it. And um, so long as I'm professional and I get everything right as well as I can, um, I don't expect people to judge me. If they do, of course, they're allowed to, but it's not, it doesn't bother me the same way I had to manage all those things when I we were at the height of our, you know, dollar years. Yes. Well, I, I sort of uh, often think about people like, you know, the Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger or Iggy Pop or any of those people who are doing it. And I, I think if they didn't have that music, you know, to wake up all that, that, that tour, or, you know, all that kind of, you know, commitment, you know, they would just be getting really, slow they would be slowing down I think you know it just must have been must be such a good thing to still have that kind of oh my god I've got two months on the road or I've got six months on the road and I've got all this kind of pressure you know and you know age is an interesting thing isn't it things do change and you know things that might have really bothered you think I just don't care about it anymore and then you have you know some interesting new little aches and pains that you have to navigate but when you're feeling yeah, good yeah no, of course <laughs> when, but when you're feeling good or as good as you can you just think, right, I'm going to really make an effort here because I've, you know, I've had a little bit of a hiccup there and I've got through that and um, that's a relief. So let's let's keep rocking here. So, I, th you know, I think it must be the mind over matter must be quite massive, actually. Does that mean you've been sort of working your vocals and doing a bit of training and sort of thinking, right, I must go to the gym for a bit of, you know, a bit of, bit of a few sessions before this because it's going to be quite an intense little kind of couple of months or yes months uh, yeah. of rehearsal today it, it will so, be I'll, I'll, yeah it will be yeah I'll be in the UK for about six weeks and um I don't do the gym because I just never like the gym at all but um I walk I walk and sing so I've got a lovely beautiful park not far from where I live and uh I think people must think oh there's that crazy lady again because I've got my earpods in and I've got tracks going and I'm kind of walking and singing so I mean it's aerobic but it's really good practice and it's very hilly where I am so yeah. you keep going when you're marching up the hill and keep singing so it's quite good practice um and I enjoy that so I'm very mindful that the show is about two hours of music which is quite a lot and Amazing. um yeah yes. I have to just build up my stamina but but that's what every artist does or 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 um athletes or whatever we're doing you know you just have to you can't imagine it's all going to just happen by accident um, mm. there's oh you just need to be a bit more sensible I suppose yeah absolutely and does that mean you know because you're on quite a creative role at this point do you feel that there could be new material that you're you've been thinking about you know with the you know as you sort of got a band together you've got another singer that you're you know singing with do you feel as you're walking around those hills, oh, yes, there are some sort of songs that start to appear again and you start sort of reaching for a notepad and thinking, well, possible. I just wondered if, you, if you're feeling tempted. Um, yes, I did write, start writing a song a few months ago when I committed to doing this and actually all started with thinking about the Trevor years and um, listening to video called The Radio Star. So there is a song in the works and I, I find the lyric uh, the melody always comes first but often with one kind of catchy bit of lyric which is often the hook I suppose and um and I'll sing it around about five or six times and then I'll just leave it I won't put it even into my phone and I'll see if I remember it later mm, you know, interesting yeah kind of it, see if it 
I mean, you know, there's only eight eight notes in an octave. <laughs> Heaven sakes, you know, you know, with millions and millions and millions of songs. How could you ever come up with something that sounds good enough to think it's even got the potential? But um, this song's quite nice, and it's um, kind of positive and sort of up. And then just so happened, you know, I'm a great believer in sort of synchronicity, which you know, things that you can't control, but once you start the ball rolling, things just seem to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, got approached um, by a small independent UK record label to say that they wanted to make a record. So we are actually making a record and it will be out for the tour. And um, can't tell you any other than it is a remake of a big hit, but oh. in a very different, very different style. So one of the dollar songs that has been remade again. Mm -hmm. Oh, but that's in, right. in, in quite a different. And I and I heard. I thought, oh, I don't know about this. And I heard it, and I had the biggest smile. I must have listened to it eight times in a row. It's that good. And every Excellent. time I listened, I thought, this is great. I love this. I love it. And it's a Dutch producer. So it's quite, it's kind of, I would call it, I don't know what the genre would be, but sort of cruisy dancey with that kind of, that kind of lovely kind of dance vibe kind of thing. But in a, you know, like the the, the Elton John duo Leaper kind of feel. Yes. That, that kind of, that kind of vibe. Um, it's really very good. So it's going to be, it's going to be out just in time for the tour. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. So I went into a studio. First time in Lord knows. Well, you probably know more than me. How many years would have been since I recorded something in a proper recorded studio? Twenty-five. <laughs> um, I don't. Who's counting? I don't know. <laughs> I know it was a long time, wasn't it? It was a long time ago. Well, yes, you... I kind of. Oh, yeah, I was counting down the days. I was thinking, I wonder if it would just be like all the other times. Will it be? Will I be okay? Will I remember what to do? How will I sound? And I got in there, and this gorgeous young engineer. And um, he said, right, then he said, well, how would you like to do it? I said, well, I go into the booth and you're we're just going to get a reasonably nice sound on my voice. And we were chatting a bit about all the old school tech, like, you know, the old analog desks and then yes. you know, all, all the plugins and everything and AMSs and the lexicon. And I said, lexicon was great for my voice. And he goes, I've got one of those, a digital one. I said, oh, OK. And anyway, he got this lovely sound on my voice in about five minutes. And I did a few kind of runs through. He said, so should we start recording? I suppose so. And off we went. And then doing my harmonies stack, I said, I normally do eight vocals and then we bounce them down. He said, oh, okay. And it was just like nothing had nothing had changed. Um, how amazing is that? Yes, absolutely fantastic. <laughs> absolutely great. That's good. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your like 16-year-old self-starting out, is there any anything that you would have told them, even if that person would have ignored you, but with all the kind of you know, experience and, you know, learning and wisdom and, and reflection that you've had. Is there anything that you'd have gone, oh, yes, that would have been, oh, I might have a few things. Or not, you might have seen, yes, that's fine, just go for it. But it's always curious if if there was something that you would have thought, yeah, I'd have really wished I told my 16-year-old self that, or someone had. I would have definitely said, find yourself a really good manager and stick with them because you absolutely can't do everything yourself. It's impossible. Yes, it is tricky. Did you ever find a good manager? No. <laughs> so <laughs> we kind of, you know, no, it just, it never really happened. I mean, Bud Prager would have been a great manager 
for us. And he was a great manager for me. He absolutely was. But um, the dollar, we we just never, just never hit on the right thing because if you're in, you know, when we were um, in the, the the busy dollar days, we had a management company, but on their roster were the tourists who became the Eurythmics. And yes. so you, it, it's kind of, it's a jostling act to try and get the attention. It's not attention in a needy way, but you need no. someone who's really on it, you know, so you could understand, you know, Colonel Parker and Elvis, and you've just got one band that, that you live, eat, breathe, sleep, that, and that kind of is what you need. But if you're in a stable, a bit like the record label, you're always juggling or jostling for position for attention or for budget or something like that, you see. Um, so I think that that was the problem then. Yes, there's, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's a common thing, isn't it? Often I find that people get signed to a record label and then that person who really believed in them and was going to kind of help them kind of go, oh, by the way, I'm leaving next week. And it's like, and then the next person who's sitting there going, why have you, why have we got you on the label? And it's like, you know, it's, I mean, the luck involved in having, you know, the stars really have to line up, don't they? Because at the time when you have that success, and it doesn't happen for every band and artist, but it, when it does happen, you realise that probably in retrospect, wow, that's just amazing. It just came together at that moment and and we did it. And then suddenly it's gone. It's like, what happened? It's it's over. It's it can't. We, we'll do that's it again. Right. Don't worry. You know, and it's like, yeah. mm, it doesn't quite happen like it. That's why I was so, it wasn't being sort of um, controlling, but it was more that I didn't really trust anyone to have our best interests at heart because I understood the pressures, you know, that every individual has with, you know, you're a label manager for WA Records when you've got five or six artists and Rod Stewart was on his roster of artists, you know, so you don't want to mess up something that Rod Stewart needs, do you? So if he's only got so much, so much time and so much budget or something, well, who are you going to pick, Rod Stewart or Dollar? So, uh, so you know that you're never going to get really the care and the attention that you need and, yes. and so that I to take a lot on my shoulders I did I guess it's a bit like Brian Epstein and the Beatles wasn't it I think you know they didn't realize probably at the time just how important that was and then suddenly when he wasn't there it's it you know unravels all the little things that he probably did and big things as well that they knew that he did you know just someone else had to pick up and it's kind of difficult so um it's tricky did you I mean because you know, because you were on, you know, like WEA and also another label before that. Did did Cherry Red Records, when they put that box set together, did they have, a, you know, was it quite kind of easy for them to sort of get all your material together and all the demos and and the and the booklet? Because it is such a lovely package, and that, you know, I've always been amazed with it. Oh, I'll pass it on. So my dear friend Alan Connor, um, he actually was employed by Cherry Red to put the whole package together, and he. As he actually was a fan, um, but and we met. We are now the dearest of friends, which is so wonderful. But he's um, uh, a Yorkshire man from Leeds, and uh, his mum had to bring him to um, a club we were performing. So I think because he was fourteen, he was underage, but they'd let him come in with his mum, and that's the first time he saw us. And he's got still got a picture of that, and um, and and we met later on, and, and we just. just Remain friends. He he knows more about me and my life than I do. I absolutely have no doubt about that. And, and he put the whole thing together. So it was with a lot of love, you see, because he cares. Right. Yes. And that's it nice. Shows. 
Shows, yeah. It does. I mean, it's it's. I, I must admit, with age, I do love, I do love archiving and completing things and having them nicely done. So, it's um, mm. it's an age thing, isn't it? Really. <laughs> so I they, don't know about that. I think it's nice to have something done professionally and well done. I think. Yes, and we appreciate it. Yeah. We understand. Yeah. And also at that stage, you know, we, we're getting these kind of compilations and collections together with the demos. I think people have to sort of find tapes and get this. And, and if that if it didn't happen then, it would like just get chucked in the bin probably in the, in the next five or 10 years. So it's like, oh, fantastic. They managed to, to get it baked, you know, if it was one of those, you know, tapes and sort of put the, you know, digitally put to, you know, remastered and suddenly it's there. So I think that's, I'm, I'm you know, I really love archiving. I think it's fantastic. So there you go. Yeah. I'll As pass one. it on. It yeah, be very do. Because that was, that was great. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much to Teresa Bazaar for giving me the time for that. One time member of um, Dollar and also Guys and Dolls. And they have, or she has, some live dates in September 2023 and into early part of October. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these have been archived these being interviews. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.